Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. Glad you can make it out on Super Bowl Sunday. You know, I don't know how many times yesterday and the days before that I was either tagged in or posted on my wall something that I see every year around Super Bowl Sunday. Anne's laughing because she's she did it. She was one of them. Um, this a, a meme, if you will, of saying that we should be more excited. We should be as excited about church as we are about the Super Bowl. And you know, preachers have probably said that for for many years. And so somebody thought it would be funny to say, "Well, if if we treat church like we treat the Super Bowl, then somebody needs to come up and dump a bucket of Gatorade on the preacher." <laughs> Um, I have been working out, and I will not be afraid to flip anyone into the baptistry if you try to do that this morning. Um, This morning, uh, we're talking about uh, um, one of my favorite minor prophets. Um, They're all um, very quickly becoming my favorites the more and more I, I read into them. Uh, I was talking to somebody uh, the other day who's from the South about Skyline Chili, about Cincinnati-style chili. I said, for most people from the South, Cincinnati-style chili is either a love-hate relationship. Um, For most people that I've experienced who try Cincinnati-style chili for the first time, the first thing that comes out of their mouth after they try it is Habakkuk. (laughs) Um, Habakkuk is one of those... The funny names of the Bible. It's a name that uh, you remember, and hopefully uh, after our lesson today, it's something that you will turn to often um, and look to for some hope, um, especially in tough times in your life. Lee Greenwood sings this one song. You may have heard of it. But the opening lines of the song are, If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd worked for all my life, and I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I'd thank my lucky stars to be living here today because the flag still stands for freedom, and they can't take that away. This song is about pride. In fact, the, the title of the song is Proud to be an American. I love this song, and now that I've said some of the lyrics, it'll be stuck in my head all day. And it's probably going to be stuck in yours as well. But I wanted to use it as an example of exactly what Habakkuk experiences, uh, at least at the outset of this book. What if our wicked nation came under the judgment and wrath of God, and He sent an oppressive, wicked, awful nation to overthrow us? How would that make you feel? Would you Remain faithful to God. Would you rejoice in Him? Because if tomorrow all the things were gone that you'd worked for all your life and you had to start again with just your children and your wife or maybe not even with them, would your faith be stretched or would it be strengthened? In what do you rejoice? This is the big application question this morning. And a question I'd like you to ponder on as we go throughout our lesson. Habakkuk, the name Habakkuk means embrace. And the name again, as we saw with Nahum, uh, I see as no coincidence as to the message that he brings. 
The exact date of the book uh, is not exactly known. Um, Habakkuk isn't really mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. Jewish tradition puts the writing of this book sometime after Nahum's time as a prophet uh, in the southern kingdom. That's where uh, Habakkuk is as well in Judah. Um, and this, this would put the writing of the book around the time that Babylon is making their push towards world dominance. Uh, it's about probably 50 and 20, between 50 and 20 years before Babylon would ultimately take over Judah, Israel, and Assyria uh, in 586 B.C. Now if you remember uh, from a couple weeks ago, um, uh, Assyria it was already over Israel. They had already taken over Israel and they were in charge. They were in power up there. And Nahum, remember Nahum was all about the destruction of Nineveh, which was the capital city of Assyria. All right, so Nahum was uh, prophesying of the um, coming destruction of Nineveh, of Assyria, at the hands of Babylon. And so uh, Habakkuk takes us now back into Judah... Okay, so Nahum was really more for um, rejoicing for Judah. It was, it was for Judah to rejoice over the fact that, that Assyria would be punished for what they had done to their brothers in Israel, for, for the wickedness that they had. Habakkuk, however, tells us that the same punishment is coming for Judah as well. Um, if you haven't already, turn over to Habakkuk uh, chapter 1. Um, so why is Judah going to be punished? Well, we've seen throughout uh, the, the study in the Minor Prophets thus far that, that uh, they've been given warnings, they've been provided prophecies, they've seen the punishment that's been going on in Israel, and even though they see the things that are going on in Israel at the hands of the Assyrians, they continue to ignore the warnings that have been given to them by God. They're going to keep going in their oppression of the poor, their violence, their lack of justice, the overwhelming corruption and sin, you name it. Judah is guilty of it. And we see this in the first section of Habakkuk. Now if you're taking notes, there are five different sections of the book of Habakkuk. It's only three chapters, but there's five different sections in there. The first of which is Habakkuk's prayer for uh, a prayer of frustration. Uh, so listen to his words, his prayer. And, and I want you, as you listen to this, ask yourself if this is a prayer that you can relate to here in America. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk's prayer is speaking not about the Assyrians, not about what's happening to Israel, but what he's seeing happening around him in Judah. He's saying, O oh Lord, how many times do I need to cry out to you and, and seek your salvation from the wickedness that is around me? Look at these people, your people. They're oppressive, they're unjust, and the law has been paralyzed. He said, they're more unjust than righteous, and justice is dead because... Because, God, you're not hearing me. You're not saving me from this. 
And then God responds. And that's the next section section here of Habakkuk. And you're going to see this pattern repeat at least one more time. Habakkuk has a prayer, and then God responds. Um, and then at the end, Habakkuk finally gets it. And he sings a beautiful song, or provides a beautiful song. And I think that's where we'll get it as well. Chapter 3 is where I think the, the, uh, the big application comes. And we'll get there. Um, this book is... Um, is really beautifully written. It serves, as I mentioned before, as an important reminder to us as Christians of, of where we should be rejoicing. So God hears Habakkuk and responds to him, and the answer whew, is not exactly something that you would probably want to hear. Um, so let's read uh, verses 5 through 11 here. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, and the Chaldeans are, are, is Babylon, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Their own might is their God. It's an idol that they worship. And we'll see that here uh, in a second. Verse 10 is interesting, at least from an archaeological standpoint. Uh, it is well documented that Babylon, when they would overthrow a city, uh, would basically excavate tons of dirt, and they would build a dirt ramp to go over the wall. If, if of course, they can't just dam up a river and go in that way. Uh, but uh, it's, it's interesting because uh, they, they, they have found these things, um, and some of these Dirt ramps actually still exist today. If you uh, are in the ancient, e or not, it's not the ancient East now, but if you're in the Middle East area and you look at some of these ancient cities and ruins that they overthrow, the ramps are actually still there. Um, so, verses, um, th these verses here that God is basically saying, you know, I'm going to do something about it. Right? Habakkuk is saying, why, why haven't you done anything about this yet? And God says, oh, I'm going to do something. I'm raising up Babylon. They're an awful people. They're going to devour everything in their path. They're going to clean up the mess that Judah has made. Now, if Habakkuk was like most of us, he'd be thinking, maybe a godly leader will rise up and, and, and put policies in place to make everyone shape up, to, to obey the gospel, to do what they need to be doing in this world. But God says, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And so that brings us to the next section here of Habakkuk's prayer. This is his prayer of indignation that's next. So Habakkuk hears what God says, and he has something to say in return. He's indignant. He's annoyed at what he sees as unfair treatment from God. Look at verse 12 of um, 
chapter 1. Are you not from everlasting God? O Lord my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. But you who are pure of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? The next verses, 14 through 17, compares Babylon to fishermen and humanity and those who they, they would eventually be overtaking as the fish. Um, it says um, that they catch, they kill, and they consume everything in their path, and then when they're done with it, they worship their nets. Right? That goes back to what we saw a few minutes ago, that their might is their God. They worship their strength. They worship their military power. More on that in a little bit. And Habakkuk is lost. He's confused. He's, he's, he's wanting to know why God would allow his people, why God would allow Habakkuk's nation to fall, to be conquered, and to be destroyed by these people. I know that we've been awful and wicked. That's why I prayed these things to you, God. I know that we are a terrible people, but these people, them, Babylon, why them? Why are we being punished with them? How is that fair? How is that just? In uh, chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me. And I will answer concerning, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk says, I'm going to wait for you to answer me, God. Why, is, why are you being so unfair to us? Why? Why? I'm going to wait. I'm going to stand up here. I'm going to wait for your answer. Do we ever feel, do we ever see or ask why the wicked or the evil prosper and the righteous don't? Things aren't what we thought they'd be Sometimes. Life isn't as comfortable as we expected it to be. But if you remember back in Amos chapter 6, verse 1, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Look at Job and everything that Job went through in his life. And Habakkuk now feeling pretty much the same way. If anyone from the outside looked at Job, a righteous man by all accord, and saw the punishment and torture that he had to go through, why is that fair? How is that fair? How is that just? And now Habakkuk's feeling the same way. And we may feel the same way as well sometimes. And God says, at least in these cases, that it's going to get worse before it gets better. And sometimes that may be the case for us as well. So what do we do? How do we how should we react in times like that? What is our hope? I think we tend to default uh, oftentimes to optimism and look for others to reinforce optimism within us. You know, if you're having a terrible day, things are just not going the way you expected them to go, and you want to tell yourself, oh, it'll be it'll be all right. Things will get better. 
And you want other people to tell you the same thing, right? You go to your friends who are supportive of you, hopefully. You go to your family who are supportive of you, and they'll say, it's okay. Things will get better. It's just a phase. I told my wife that this morning. It's just a phase. They'll grow out of it. But that's not peace. We long for our lives to remain easy, but that's not what peace is. That's not what biblical peace is. Where is our hope? How can we have peace in this dark world if things don't get better in America, if, if our president doesn't do this or that? or How can I have peace of mind? How can we rejoice? How can we have hope in a dark and wicked world? Well, God hears Habakkuk and He responds. That's the next bullet point here. And in his response, we get a directive from God, something that we see echoed throughout Scripture. He helps us understand that the wicked trust in themselves and worship their own power, but they will ultimately be judged and destroyed because of it. And we saw that a couple weeks ago in Nahum. And that's, that's the good news, right? That's good news to know that God is going to punish those who are wicked. Because it means we don't have to worry about it. Because God has it under control. If you have a piece of money in your wallet, it likely still says, in God we trust. It'd be nice if that was actually the motto of the United States. It'd be even greater if that was really the motto of our lives. To trust in God, to fulfill His promise to us. And here's where we get that directive. Chapter 2, verse 4. I don't have it up here. Um, sorry about that, but, but listen to this. I'm sure you'll recognize this verse. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Right? We've heard that. I'm sure you've heard that before. It's uh, repeated in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. Paul loved this verse. The righteous shall live by faith. God comforts us with this. It may look like the wicked will prosper, but trust me, that's not how it ends. It won't always be this way. It must be this way for now, for my purposes, God says, for my purposes to be completed. But in the end, they'll get what's coming to them. Trust me. And now we get in to the five woes of Babylon. And really, these are for all the Babylons of the world. And I think, and I, I don't think I have to go too far out on a limb to say that America is a lot like Babylon in many, many facets. We talked about this in our study of Daniel last year. But every world power has the tendency to repeat these things. History makes it very clear to see these patterns that happen, these five woes. Alright, so the five woes of Babylon. Spoiler alert. There we go. Five woes of Babylon. Number one. Um... Number one is theft and extortion. Let 
Here we go. Knew it would show up eventually. Um, so as we go through these woes, I want you to think about um, these things. And, and think of it two ways. All right? Woe is sadness and distress that is caused by certain things. And, and in this context, these things that God's going to talk about. But at, at the same time, what do you say to a horse when you want it to stop? Woe! Right? It's, a, it's, a, it's an expression of danger, impending danger. I, I want you to stop. So look at these things from two perspectives. These are terrible things that should make you sad if you see them in the world. But at the same time, it should make you stop. It should give you warning and say, this is not right. We should not be doing this. That's not what God desires. So number one. Verses 6 through 8 of chapter 2 detail the theft and extortion of Babylon. Basically, they go to nations, they say, pay us and we won't invade you. And sometimes, even if they pay them, they still invaded them. They still took them over and they took their riches. And if people didn't pay them, well, then they overthrew them. They killed them all and took everything that they had. And number two directly ties into that. Evil gain. The things that they had, the things that were in their households, were not theirs. They stole it from other people. It's their evil gain. And, and now they have it to build themselves up, really, uh, in their own culture. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Verse 9. Number three. Something similar to what we talked about a couple weeks ago in Nahum chapter 3. But here in Habakkuk, God addresses the violence of Babylon in verses 12 through 14. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. God says that in verse 12. Jerusalem was accused of this very thing, remember, back in Micah chapter 3 verse 10. Number 4. In verses 15 through 17, God speaks to the woeful drunkenness of Babylon's leaders. How corrupt they are. Drunk with power, drunk with wine, drunkenness in general. How corrupt they were and how they corrupted others with their corruption, with their drunkenness, and brought shame upon themselves and their people. And finally, in the last verses of chapter 2, God presents the fifth and final woe of Babylon, which is idolatry. We've already heard it mentioned twice now, but God addresses it directly there. Um, Babylon worshipped, again, their, their military, their strength. And church... Every powerful nation, even today, worships their military. A nation puts their confidence in their military. It's their hope. But as we'll see in a minute, what happens when hope is gone? What happens when the thing that you place your hope in is gone? Well, your hope goes with it. Verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. 
Babylon's worship of themselves, really of, of, of their military, uh, was all about the glory and greatness of themselves, of their kingdom. It's what they used to boast themselves up, to, to put themselves up on a high pedestal. Now, do you see something similar to that here in America? God says all of that is worthless. All of that means nothing. And He says, because of this, I will punish, because I am king. It is I, God, Yahweh, that you should be worshiping. For without me, you would be dust. So somewhere in God's response here in chapter 2, Habakkuk gets it. Something clicks. And his final response to God is not a prayer for clarification. It's not a prayer of annoyance. It's not a prayer of indignation. It's not a prayer for help. But it's a song. It's a song of satisfaction. A beautiful and wonderful poem that, that I encourage you to read this afternoon. If you haven't read this yet, I know Adam probably didn't tell you to read ahead. So um, it's only three chapters. You have time to read it before the Super Bowl. You actually could probably read it in between commercial breaks. Because let's be honest. We all really watch the Super Bowl for the commercials. But read it this afternoon. I mean, I know we've pretty much read through the entire book at this point, but I'm not going to read all the way through chapter 3. I want you to do that today. Um, so it is here in chapter 3 that we learn what faith really is, what Christianity really is. Faith, <clears throat> faith is not prosperity. Faith is not health. It's not our job. That's called optimism, right? We talked about that earlier. Faith is not optimism. Biblical faith is better than optimism. Because optimism is the hope, of con uh, the hope or confidence of how something is going to turn out. But biblical faith is based in a knowledge, in an understanding, in an acceptance, in a belief that that is how it will turn out, and it has already been determined by God, that God is in control. Our faith is in God, not the outcome of what may happen in this world. Our faith is in what will happen at the end, right? Listen to Habakkuk's final words as we close out this morning. <clears throat> now for most of chapter 3, Habakkuk says, I hear you, Lord. I, I accept what you have planned for Judah what you have planned for your people, I fear you. I'm not anticipating much joy to come out of this. But then at the end of verse 16, he says, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. We need to remember that when times are tough, when we feel abandoned, when we feel like the world is against us in every sense of the word, we need to remember that we need to wait patiently on Him. We need to wait patiently on the Lord and trust Him. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 18 says, Therefore the Lord wants to be gracious to you, and therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for Him. Verse 17, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there will be no herd in the stalls. He's depicting a famine here, basically. 
Back then, if you have no crops, if you have no livestock, you've got nothing. That's your livelihood. That's your food. That's your, that's your job. That's where you get money from to do the other things. So today, if you want to apply it to, to our world today, it would be something like, I wrecked my car and I don't have the money or the insurance coverage to replace it. Or I lost my job maybe because I wrecked my car and I couldn't get there. A family member or a friend has died. I have no home. The misery of loss, of grief, of having nothing. That's what Habakkuk is describing in this. And then he says in verse 18 through 19, Yet, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Even though we may lose everything, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And church, this doesn't mean don't worry, be happy. That's a song by some guy back when I was a kid, I think. <laughs> but earlier today, uh, earlier this morning, I talked about the tendency for us to seek optimism or seek out others who will build up optimism within us when we're having a rough go. I wrecked my car and I can't replace it. Oh, don't worry about it. Just be positive. Look on the bright side. Rejoice in the Lord. That's not what this is saying. It means that we rejoice in Him always and never anywhere else. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Right? That's the song that we sing. It means that we should never, or should have never, we should never have our joy in our car, in our job, in our home, in our family, or even in our country. We should not place our joy in those things. Joy comes from the Lord. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. You notice what isn't a fruit of the Spirit? Happiness. Right? Everybody says, oh, God just wants me to be happy. No, God wants you to be filled with joy, the joy that He provides. This morning, as Sarah and I were lamenting over Caleb's bad choices, I reminded her that happiness is not joy. Happiness includes joy. Happiness comes from joy. But everything that makes us happy, joy is a part of it because God has provided it. It is a blessing, but we should not rejoice in the blessing, but the one who gives it. We cannot and shouldn't be rejoicing in the things of this world. Not in our country, certainly not in politicians. Not in our checkbook, our jobs, our health, etc. Because when those things are gone, our joy goes with it. When Sarah and I lost our first child, our joy was in that child. I didn't rejoice in the Lord. And when we lost her, my joy, my hope, went with her. I knew I was going to do it as soon as I as soon as I put this point in there. <clears throat> it took a lot. It took a lot of prayer, it took a lot of work, it took a lot of faith to regain that joy, to realize where our joy should have been all along. 
Not in the child, but in the one who made her and the one who claimed her back. And today, look around America. Look at, look at everyone who put their joy in an election and how they're reacting because they put their joy in something of this world and it didn't go the way that they thought it would or that didn't go the way that they planned. It was something that was not guaranteed. We constantly need reminded of this church. The joy, this joy that comes from God, rejoicing in the Lord and not the things of this world. It's how Paul could write letters from jail. It's how Paul and Silas could sit in a jail cell after being beaten to a pulp and sing songs of praise and pray to God. That's what rejoicing in the Lord is. Even when times are tough, even when things look bleak, we still rejoice in the Lord. The Lord must be our joy. He must be our strength. He must be our hope. He needs to be our everything. Why? Why not? After all that we've done, after all that Israel has done time and time again, He still desired for them not to perish. He still spared a remnant to bring forth His Son, to bring forth the Messiah, to once and for all wipe out the division of sin for those who believe and are baptized. He spared us, the new house of Israel, the new Jerusalem. Not for our sake but for the sake of all nations that whosoever would believe in Him, whosoever would obey His commands, shall have everlasting life, but not perish. Why shouldn't we rejoice in the Lord always? Because the greatest promise of everlasting life waits for those who believe. If you're here this morning and the joy of the Lord is lost on you, if you find yourself rejoicing in the things of this world, let us pray for you. Let us pray with you. Let us help restore the knowledge of the hope that is found in the gospel truth. If you're here this morning and you haven't been baptized for the remission of your sins, what is holding you back? If it's the world that's holding you back or the joy that you've placed in the world, I implore you to... Turn away from that. Repent. That's what turning away means. Repent and turn your eyes to Jesus and the saving grace that comes from the obedience of the gospel. If the church can assist you with any of these things this morning, won't you come while we stand and sing?